We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a special episode of my Ten Questions podcast where my guest is legendary U.S. comedy writer Nell Scovell. Nell started her career writing for Spy Magazine and Vanity Fair. Since then, she's written for The Simpsons, Letterman, Murphy Brown, Newhart, NCIS. She created Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and she was executive producer on Charmed. She's written jokes for Obama. She co-wrote Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg's best-selling book, Lean In. And her autobiography, Just the Funny Parts, is an enthralling book. If you're ever stuck or feeling alone as a writer... Dip into just the funny parts and I'm certain it'll bring you out of your funk and inspire you to stay the course. It certainly did that for me. I interviewed Nell in Sydney in front of a live audience at the invitation of Jungle Entertainment where she's currently working with a bunch of Australian writers. As usual, I started by asking Nell when she was most happy and she recalled the period of being pregnant and bringing up her children. Original plan was I would carry the baby for the first nine months and then he would carry it for the next nine months. And then what we learned was he was a spectacular caregiver, like way more uh, patient uh, than I was. And so we just kept going. Um, But it was hard being a working mom. I I was often... You know, I missed a lot of dinners. In fact, in the book, I talked about how I made breakfast the family meal because I knew I would always be there at 7.30 and 8, and and we would have crepes Thursday, every Thursday, and I would make the boys crepes. Um, But I used to say a good day was a day I got to see my kids uh, because it didn't always happen. Sometimes if I was directing, I'd be out of town um, or, or, you know, producing up in Canada. And uh, so now the kids are grown, they're at college, and um, I have a father who's 91, who lives in Boston, and once the kids went off to school, I realized I could move closer to my father, who's just a wonderful, funny man, and now I say a good day is a day I get to see my dad. Wow. Yeah. Did you... Do you think you got sure on your sense of humor from your father? I did. He's really... um, I I took him... He uh, had cataract surgery just last week. And I took him to the hospital, and he introduced me to everyone as his parole officer. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. So... Did he improv that, or did he think about it? Or I don't. He's don't just a very so. funny yeah. man. Did um, <laughs> I, I do want to touch on the fact that you, you moved from uh, Spy and Vanity Fair to writing, uh, just to screenwriting, and your was it your first spec script? Was that the It's the Gary Shandling Show? Yeah. So I mean, the, and the transition. The only reason it occurred to me was I bumped into an editor, an old editor from Spy, one day on the streets of New York. And she said to me, um, Nell, I don't mean this as an insult, but I think you could write for television. <laughs> and it was the first time it ever occurred to me. Yeah, right. Well, now we're in this sort of golden age when people know the names of TV writers. But, you know, when I grew up, and especially on the East Coast, it was like, oh, right, people must write those shows. Like, it just didn't seem like 
a profession. Oh, it went, still doesn't quite seem like a oh, profession. No, I went to a, a shrink once who actually thought the actors wrote the uh, <laughs> Right. <yeah. laughs> the characters write their own lines. That's right. Yeah. Have you met any actors? Okay, so I won't name names, but I once, and this wasn't me, but I had a, I was working for an executive producer who, one of the actors had a problem with the line, and so he said to her, well, w w what should she say instead? And then let her just stammer. <laughs> for two minutes and then went, we'll think of something. <laughs> <laughs> I do like those stories. <laughs> uh, question two is, now, who would you like to apologize to and why? Well, this audience. <laughs> no, uh, so I think women apologize too much. Um, I was not too long ago in a bookstore and I was sort of, it was, it was pretty crowded and I was kneeling looking at a book and I heard a woman say, excuse me, and I was petrified so I popped up which kind of <laughs> sent her back a step and she knocked another woman and I said, I'm sorry, and she said, I'm sorry, and the other woman said, I'm sorry, and we three sorries like within a second. Wow. <laughs> and, and that's, we're just naturally always apologizing. And how do you, how do you change like get out of that because it's almost addictive saying sorry. Right, I mean they actually yeah. started that sorry not sorry. Yeah, that's right. Movement is it a movement? I don't know. It's it's certainly a, a thing people say now. Are you apologetic for? Is there anything like from a professional point of view? Oh yeah, you know people. There, there's a thing in Hollywood where no one's ever worked for a bad show, yeah. right? It's like well you should read the scripts. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, the, the studio notes are killing us, or the budget is killing us. So I, I will, I'll apologize for a few charmed scripts I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> they were not good. <laughs> heavily, heavily noted. Yeah, that's right. The network noted them. Um, question three. I guess this is the kind of segues in. Uh, what is your greatest regret? Oh, I was, uh, I was thinking of reading a story from, that's not in my book, but um, it's about Colin Firth. Yeah, yeah. May I do that? Oh, well, yeah, totally. <laughs> While that happens, I just want you to know, I'm going to throw to the audience at the end of this so you can ask some questions. So if you are thinking of uh, anything you'd like to ask now, we'll do it at the end. Okay, Colin Firth. So this isn't in the book. This is all fresh. So um, uh, it's a little, it's a setup, but um, walking into a Vanity Fair Oscar party is the oddest feeling. You recognize everyone and know no one. It's wall-to-wall -wall movie stars and celebrities looking gorgeous and cool, except the year that Sergey Brin walked around wearing Google Glass. I've been attending the party on and off since editor-in-chief Graydon Carter took over in the early 90s. Uh, back in those days, there was a clear distinction between the big and little screen. So that for me, this was, uh, I was a TV writer, this was a whole new experience. Uh, to be part of this movie star-studded crowd. My first year attending, I made a loop around the room, then paused in the center of Morton's to survey the room panoramically. I wanted to remember the moment forever. I need you to move, barked a man in a do-rag carrying a camera. It took me a second to realize he was speaking to me. And then I froze, not sure which direction I should move. Now, photographer Bruce Weber yelled at me, you're ruining my picture. 
He gestured behind my shoulder and I turned to see that behind me stood Muhammad Ali, pretty as ever, posing with Madonna at the height of her career. <laughs> and yet that was not the most cringe-worthy star, uh, worthy star interaction that I've had at the Vanity Fair party. It was 2011, the year the King's Speech won a slew of awards and the party was at the elegant Sunset Towers. Around 1 a.m., I headed outside and handed my ticket to the valet captain. I was standing under a heat lamp when a stretch limo pulled up and the valet waved to a group that included the winner of the Best Actor Award that evening, Colin Firth. They all moved toward the limo. Ever the gentleman, Colin held the door open for his all-female entourage that included his wife, his publicist, and two others. With the high heels and long gowns, it took a while for the women to slide in, and as Colin stood facing the sidewalk, his gaze eventually fell on me. <laughs> there was maybe eight feet between us, and I could see the triumph of the night flashing in his eyes. He flashed me a roguish smile. I smiled back. Colin Firth and I were having a moment. <laughs> And I didn't want the moment to end. I had loved his performance, and this was a chance to let him know how happy I was for him and how much I thought he deserved to win. <laughs> I was already smiling, so I needed to do something more, and that's when I called out, well done, Mr. Darcy. <laughs> Immediately, his face dropped, and he lowered his gaze he shook his head, I swear to God, he did. He spun around and pretty much shoved the last lady into the limo, slid in next to her, and quickly shut the door. Clearly, I had insulted him, but how? I thought, well, now I know how Elizabeth Bennett felt. Uh, but I truly did feel guilty. This was a high point of his career, and somehow my four words had darkened it. The next morning, I told the troubling sister to my dear, uh, told the troubling story to my dearest sister Claire, and she immediately chastised me. Don't you know he hates to be reminded of that part? Claire explained. He says it in every interview that he's he's gotten over playing Darcy, and women need to get over it too. <laughs> so that was my sin. Colin Firth finally buried his chiclet past, and like in a horror movie, I'd reached out from the grave and grabbed his well-formed ankle. So I moaned to my sister, how could I have done that to him? And she cut me off. You know, she said, if he doesn't want to be associated with Mr. Darcy, then maybe he should stop playing him. An excellent point. Firth had accepted that role not once, not twice, but three times, and a fourth since then. He played it old school and then updated it for Bridget Jones. And did Mr. Darcy deserve such hate? Without Mr. Darcy, would, there, would he ever have had the chance to play King George? And it made me realize that in our moments of greatest triumph, it would be wiser to reflect and even relish where we came from. After all those years of playing Mr. Darcy, had Mr. Firth learned nothing of either pride or prejudice? Oh. <laughs>
Joke's on you, Colin Firth. Isn't it? The joke is, because my editor was like, nobody cares about Colin Firth. That's why she cut the story. (laughs) (laughs) We can. So that's uh, a stern word with your editor. Question four is, what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Oh, uh, well, now that I've seen Australia, um, (laughs) you know, I... I enjoy writing, I enjoy my family, I enjoy my friends. I, I guess just having um, a, a not painful death is <laughs> all I'm looking forward to. I got no complaints. No one's ever said that. <laughs> question five is, no, question five is who is the person who most influenced you and how? Oh, do um, how many people here are aware of Albert Brooks and his movies oh, yeah. a lot? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I tell the story in my book about uh, being in New York and bumping it to friends who worked at Saturday Night Live, who told me I should go see this movie called Real Life. It had come out before, but it was playing at some uh, like revival theater in New York, and that movie changed my life. Because I, I had grown up, and I loved the Marx Brothers, and I loved Woody Allen before he started dating his relatives. And, um, but if you think of that kind of comedy, it's very shticky. It's very, even Steve Martin, they're winking at the camera. It's big. And I go see Real Life, and if you haven't seen it, it's even funnier now because he's spoofing reality TV. Um, he was spoofing The Loud Family. And... Uh, like there's a moment where Albert's playing a director named Albert and they're following with these really goofy looking cameras a, a, a family and the wife, they've just come out of the gynecologist's office and she's gotten bad news and she says to him um, I'd like to be alone and he says I understand could we go with you <laughs> and it was just this little moment when I was like, oh, he didn't hear himself. You know, he wasn't winking at the camera. And I actually thought, I think I could write that kind of comedy. Mm. Yeah. So, and all his movies, I think Defending Your Life is one of the most perfect (laughs) essays about um, morality or how we should each live our best lives. I mean, it's it's a stunning film. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned him. I, I... he obviously he didn't write broadcast news, did he? No, he starred in he it. Starred in it. Yeah. So, but but that was one of the. I listened to this podcast recently where Aaron Sorkin says that was the thing that inspired him yeah. to actually be a writer because you didn't know that people could actually write like that. Yeah. You know, but you weren't allowed to actually say that, say those idiosyncratic things, you know, because everything was winking or a bit right. kind of staged. So that reminds me in a way of, of real. Well, life, he has that sign. I write it here. It comes out there. Uh, when he's talking about William Hurt. But I'm sure Albert, he was good friends with uh, uh, James L. Brooks, wrote the screenplay. But I have to believe Albert um, had a a hand in that. Well, yeah. He also did Lost in America. Oh, here's another reason I love Albert Brooks, is he co-wrote most of his movies with a woman, with Monica Johnson, who's very funny. Um, Sadly, she died a few years ago. But... uh, he really wanted his female characters to be dimensional. And if you watch Lost in America, she's the one who gambles away the nest egg. And it's very, mm. 
I, I don't, I think a lot of men idle, you know, will, will put women on the pedestal and not mm. let them have those flaws. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, well, and you can follow him on Twitter too. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, question six, when was the last time you cried? Why? So, I, I, I it's, uh, when the Mueller report came out and yeah. Bill, yeah. This is Bill Barr sent that four page letter yeah. and I had that moment of, they're going to get away with it. Mm. And, and that just destroyed me. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any recourse? <laughs> If you follow Nell on Twitter, you also get a bit of politics as well. It's, uh, I used to be funny, and now it's, I find it very hard to, I mean, to be... I've never been funny, but no. Okay. <laughs> Why start now? Um, so, so in a, on a professional sense, is there any, have you ever been like in a situation... Is it... You've spoken a lot about being um, a pioneer... You, you were a pioneering write, a female writer in comedy rooms... Is it was it bad to be seen to cry ever? Oh yeah, yeah. Or or show any weakness. Mm. Um, you know, I was. I remember once having the flu, being in the room, going into the ladies' room, throwing up. You know, brushing my teeth and going right back to the room because that's like you could never ever show uh, any. Weakness. Yeah, um, and you can never be sick in Hollywood, can you? It is. It's. It's like the. It's the herd mentality, and if you're the weak gazelle, they're just going <laughs> to run away from you mm. as fast. Everything as, you read about it is true. Yeah. Um, question seven is: What is your current state of mind? Oh. <laughs> Actually, I'm so happy. This is the first time I've, I've been just consulting on this amazing. Um, they're they're making a show out of this brilliant novel, Burnt Snow, I've never been in a room where the women outnumbered the men. Oh, wow. And I'm, enjoy I'm enjoying that immensely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. What's the difference? Um, no difference at all. Okay. Fewer bags of potato chips consumed. But... And what about the Australian sensibility? Have you noticed anything different? Oh, actually, there is one difference. I'm the only one interrupting other people in the room, <laughs> which I'm trying so hard not to do, but I'm so used to it. Yeah, yeah. People are polite here. <laughs> we are, until we get a few breaks into us. Um, question eight, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Uh, um... Well, I'll say professional would be uh, working with Cheryl on Lean In, mm. which, you know, I do think changed a lot of lives and sold, I don't know, four and a half million copies worldwide. And mm. like in China, it's actually had a huge impact. Um, you know, we now have 100 women in Congress. You know, five years after Lean In came out, I think there's probably some amazing. connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I still get emails from... Am I telling them a little bit about it? Okay, I mean, do people like... are aware of... Yeah, I mean, I think... So Lean In was a concept Cheryl came up with. And just so you know, so I had a friend who worked in communications at Facebook who one day, I, I had started being more outspoken about... Um, feminism in TV and and gender discrimination more specifically or equality and he asked me if I had seen Sheryl Sandberg's TED talk which she gave in 2010 it's so good it's called why we have so few women leaders 
I really strongly suggest anyone watch it. So he said, have you seen it? And I wrote back, seen it, I memorized it. <laughs> and he said, I think you two would get along. And, you know, as they say, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Um, and she asked me to help her with speeches. She was very busy. She had two very young children. And she kind of knew that, like, being funny was important to getting that message across. And she is actually very funny and, and very charming. Um, in fact, I wanted to, uh, to read you this. Just um, I meant to do this at the beginning um, to establish expectations. But this is, the book comes out. It's this huge splash. Uh, New York Magazine decides to do a, a little profile about me and includes these sentences. At first glance, Scovell could hardly be more different from the Facebook COO. She does not radiate Sandberg's upbeat poise or fill the room with effortless charisma. <laughs> so, so you're witnessing this is forced charisma. <laughs> anyway, the point of it, so the first time she and she came up with this phrase "lean in" and she used it in a speech she gave at Annapolis, which is the Naval Academy, and and it's really. Um, it's, it's a, it just means be ambitious. It's all about giving women permission to be ambitious, which our culture does not do. And the genius of Lean In is it's just, um, it's, it's so small. It's just, well, I'm not taking over your job. I'm just leaning in. Yeah. And we always joke that if I had written the book alone, I would have called it Barge In. <laughs> <laughs> So she's a much better marketer than I am. But she truly feels, and the line is that um, the world would be a better place if half our companies and institutions were run by women and half our homes were run by men. Mm. And how did you find her voice? How did you actually write for her? Well, that's where my TV background um, just came in so handy. You know, it really, I hadn't done speech writing. But it really is a combination of journalism and dialogue writing. Mm -hmm. And I always joke to her that next to Murphy Brown, she's my favorite character to write. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is. It's, this, it's a very similar um, process. And I often, you know, to, when writers are having, a, TV writers are having a hard time getting jobs, I often say, have you thought about speech writing? Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's a really fun way to do what we do. And in fact, I think it has more impact. Mm. Yeah. So I really, I love writing speeches. I do a lot of it now. Really? Yeah. Politically? Political stuff? Some, yeah, some, right. yeah. Yeah. And um, just on while we're on greatest achievement, what's your favorite uh, individual screenplay you've written? Oh, that's a... Um, or TV show, or well, or yeah, yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like, episode could be. Let's say, let's say, let's start with episode, or do you want to start with TV show? Well, I mean, The Simpsons. I just saw that it's in the top ten on IMDb of the greatest Simpsons oh, of all time. Okay. And wait, wait, no, no, let me tell you. It's, so you know, it's it's um, Homer eats blowfish and thinks he's going to oh, die. That yeah. was, and that was an idea. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Tasty poison fish, poison fish, tasty fish. Uh, I just talk. Because we're predominantly writers. So what? What? What was that process? 
Well, there's a whole chapter about it in my book. And what people don't understand is I, I saw the very first Simpsons, and I loved it. And I called my agent and said, I want to write on the show. And now it's a cultural, cultural phenomenon. But truly back then, the reason I got to write one is nobody else was calling and saying, I want to write for that show. But much like real life, I just kind of went, oh, they're... You know they're they're being mean to each other in funny ways. <laughs> that was sort of like Spy was kind of like that too. Yeah, totally. And you know when you think about it, it was 1990. You know there was still a lot of hugging in sitcoms back then. So I remember a scene in The Simpsons where the family goes to therapy together and they're hitting each other with the bats and he goes wouldn't these work better if we took the foam off and I just thought oh that's so funny uh, that's great anyway so I went in and I pitched a bunch of ideas including Homer um, eats blowfish and thinks he's going to die and another weird thing is in 1990 sushi was just coming into America like I remember the first time I had sushi in the 80s and so you could still, like, it was still kind of a, a subculture mm-hmm. to make fun of. Uh, um, and uh, so Simpsons, probably one of your, is that your favorite And, uh, you know, I love or? Sabrina. That's yeah. the, you know, great boss. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, that, that was obviously very much my sensibility. So. And, do you, and, and your recollections just... Like I just want to pass through. So Letterman, what was the? I know there was difficulties there, but what are your memories? Oh, so well, what was great about Letterman was it, it was back in the days we did, they did a top ten list, and you would in the morning you would pitch different ideas on what it could be, and some of them were um, you know based on topical news, or you know you'd come in and go, oh, what if it's Siegfried's top ten pet peeves about Roy? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know too much. Um, uh, uh, so then you would get whatever the topic was at three and you had an hour to just write all the jokes you could think of and so it was like comedy writing 101 yeah. I remember like one where it was like top ten signs you have a bad doctor and it was like um, when he's handing out prescriptions he says one for you and one for me <laughs> 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 when he says it's two livers and one kidney. So I know was that very blue one uh, that Dave Letterman talked about in the top ten jokes he could never he ne- could never say. And it's like, how do you know you're a bad doctor? When he takes your temperature with his dick. Oh man, that's <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I actually, and I, I, in that same group, I pitched when, um, when he asked to hold, when he asked to hold the specimen cup. <laughs> Can I ask, so is it, uh, <laughs> so 10 is the best joke? No, often, well, you, often one is not the best joke. No, I know. Yeah. Ten often, yeah. I thought Actually, ten was the, the best. I did was, you? I, no, it's right. My, I never my, thought. No, I like my very first entry into the top ten list was number ten. Ooh. So I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah no, I, I just literally that was just a, okay. a layman's uh, kind of look at it. Um, question nine: Who would you want on your side in a battle, and why? Well, Thanos. No, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have a brother-in-law who actually spent a lot of time diving on the Great Barrier Reef and like riding motorcycles around here. And he, like, if I, he's very clever. Yeah. He's a marine biologist. He knows a lot. But I have a new, he was going to be my answer um, <laughs> until I met Van Battam. And oh, now yeah. that's who I want oh, yeah. on wow. my side in a battle. <laughs> She didn't take long to... No. Yeah. Oh, instantly. Yeah. Her. Where is she? Man? Where is she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Professionally, in, in like from, from uh, who would you... In, in the States, who's in your dream writer's room? Oh. Who would you say? Oh, that's interesting. Well, you do... Like, you don't want all just funny people. Like, you really... There's story. There's yeah. character. Yeah. There's jokes. Like that emotion person, like so someone. That multifaceted room is really. Yeah, cool. like I always say, you cast your writers' room like you would cast an ensemble in yeah. some ways. Like you want those different voices. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's really great. That's really good to know. Um, just on a personal level, I mean, you talk about in the book meeting Gary Shandling. Yeah. Um, so you pitched, you took your, 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 your they, did he read your spec script? He or? did. Yeah. He did. They bought it. Yeah. They flew me out to Hollywood. Um, and uh, I flew all the way from New York to Hollywood to get notes from Shandling, who then, as soon as I walked in the room, said, I don't feel like giving notes today. Is that okay? <laughs> I don't know what to say. And I ended up um, not getting notes while I was there. But he and I play ping pong. And he's quite a good ping pong player. Sounds basketball or ping pong. Yeah. He did it. There was a famous Gary Shandling show episode based on The Natural. Do you know that story about the baseball? But he plays ping pong. (laughs) And the final question is, what would you like your last words to be? Oh. Um... I don't know the exact wording, but I, I know that I want my last words to be me yelling at my clone to get revenge on whoever murdered me. <laughs> we have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 